Welcome to the Create What You Speak podcast. Join me as we have a real life discussion on how to change your life by changing your thoughts. Remember, question everything, trust yourself, and find your truth. Welcome to the Create What You Speak podcast. My name is Sloan Fremont, and I'm your host. This is the show where we talk about how to change our lives by changing our thoughts. And today I have an amazing guest for you. My guest is Brooke Seam, and she's the author of the book, May Cause Side Effects. And Brooke's book is all about her journey of getting off antidepressants, um, what she experienced when she went on antidepressants at 15 years old, the things nobody told her, the things nobody really even thought about. And up to that day, she made the decision that she wanted to know who she was outside of these drugs. And so this interview, I, I know you're going to love this. We cover so much in this interview. We talk about her experience. We talk about changing our own internal stories, which is something we talk about on this show pretty much every episode. Um, we talk about hope on the other side of what she went through and what it was like for her to actually, instead of saying no to everything, say yes in, in what that experience was like for her. So if you're looking for inspiration, if you're looking for a story of of hope and of of somebody actually taking control of their life and, and changing their own story, you're really going to love this episode. So stay tuned. My interview with Brooke Seam, author of the book may cause side effects. This book is about what happens when children medicated with antidepressants grow up and question the choices made for them. Both a recovery memoir and an exploration of identity may cause side effects illuminates the turmoil of antidepressant withdrawal and the work it takes to unravel the stories we tell ourselves to rationalize our suffering. I think that statement at the end there, rationalizing our our suffering, Brooke, is that is something we talk about on the show all the time. And so I want to welcome you to the podcast. I'm so glad you're here. Thanks for having me. So let's start out by telling the audience just a little bit about you and about your book, May Cause Side Effects. Yeah. So, you know, I'm Brooke. Uh, May Cause Side Effects is about, it's effectively about antidepressant withdrawal, which doesn't mm-hmm. sound like a very interesting topic or like a book you might want to read, but I really hope you do read it because it's about way more than that. Uh, you know, the short version of the story is that I was medicated when I was 15. My father had died suddenly. It was 2001. My mom, you know, did what she thought was the right thing and took me to a psychologist who recommended a psychiatrist. And then the next thing you know, I'm on a cocktail of antidepressants and anti-anxiety drugs. And, you know, those drugs really weren't monitored. Uh, I, you know, bounced around, lived in different places, had a different doctor, and eventually a GP in New York City was just prescribing me all of these drugs for eight years with no question, um, in addition to the, you know, six, seven years I had already been on those drugs. And then I turned 30 and I started to realize that I had never spent a single moment as an adult unmedicated. Mm -hmm. I had no idea who I was without these drugs. The mm-hmm. only frame of reference I had was before my father died when I was a kid. And that just started to really not sit well with me. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, I had just gotten this completely out of the blue opportunity to travel around the world for a year. Mm-hmm. And and I was just like, well, you know, I have to take this. I have yeah. to take this opportunity. And I was, I was I'd still a deeply depressed person. I was having suicidal ideation. It was not like I was thriving. And I said, okay, well, you know, there's no way my life can be the same if I go on this trip. Yeah. So I have to do it and I can't take a suitcase full of drugs with me. 
So I'm going to go see a psychiatrist and try and get off of them and see what happens. And what happened? I thought it was going to be easy. I thought it was going to be, you know, pretty step down. I was most worried about getting extremely depressed even more than I was. That was my biggest Mm -hmm. worry. It didn't even occur to me that I would be experiencing antidepressant withdrawal. I didn't know what that was. Uh, And I certainly didn't know what that would look like. I was told it would might be a little like having the flu for a few days. Um, it was yeah. not. There were flu-like symptoms, but you know there was also severe psychological, emotional, hormonal, and physical symptoms that lasted for a year. That's not you know more than what I signed up for. Right. And, uh, so that's what the book is about. It's about my year of withdrawal, which began in New York, and you know starting to get off those drugs, and then getting on a plane and going through this process while I was also traveling internationally. Yeah. And your book was so, I mean, I felt, I, I don't, didn't know you prior to, this is the first time we're meeting. And I felt like your book, like the way it was written, like I was there with you, like it was so raw, so emotional and so much, um, I, I could feel, I could feel the truth in it, I guess, as I was reading your story. And as I, when I was thinking about that and, and about what we we're going to talk about today, um, you know, being placed on these medications at age 15, without really thinking long-term about what that means, like, and, and I'm, I'm talking about the doctors and, you know, mm-hmm. the, the quote experts, you know, on this topic. Um, the other thing that I noticed in, in, in your story was how not only were you prescribed the medication, you were almost also prescribed a story about how your life was going to go. So this yeah. is who you are because this mm-hmm. happened or because of this history. Um, this is what you can expect. And at that age, right, you're going to believe that, right? Because mm-hmm. why wouldn't you, right? And, and mm-hmm. back then, I mean, nobody was talking about things like, um, even like let's say like proper nutrition or like um, our thoughts matter, you know, we're, yeah. right? We're just, back then that just wasn't the way society was. And so as I was reading your, your story and, um, really processing what you had went through, um, that's that, that other side of the equation, not only the drugs were you dealing with, but also the stories that came with it. And mm-hmm. I think that's kind of one of those things too, that doesn't get talked about a lot. 100%, especially at that age. I mean, when you're 15, you're forming the foundation of your identity, right? That is everything you take in at that point is kind of the first time you're able to, you know, you're like one foot in the adult world, one foot mm-hmm. in a you know, childlike world, which can be really beautiful in the sense that, you know, there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of noise. You're still operating a little bit on instinct, you know, like I like this, I don't like this. And you, you have a story for your life, which is, you know, I'm going to go to college, get a good job, immediately find a partner and have a kid and, you know, get old and move to Florida, whatever it is, like you think (laughs) it's going to happen in a very specific way. And, you take a lot of input from the adults around you, whether Mm -hmm. or not, you know, whether or not you are trying to rebel and reject it, you're still taking the input. And, you know, I was a kid who I really wanted to get good grades. I wanted to, I was a very good kid. I didn't, you know, hang with the wrong crowd. I wasn't, Mm -hmm. I wasn't in the world of, you know, drugs and alcohol. It wasn't, that just wasn't me. Right. And so I trusted the adults around me. And I especially trusted a doctor because I had yeah. absolutely no reason not to. It was 2001, you know, right? I couldn't do my own research, as they say, it didn't really exist. And if it did, it took a really long time on dial up. Right. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, it was a different time. I think that maybe we've overcorrected now in the sense that, you know, especially kids, they still are seeking that same level of love and connection from mm. everyone around them. But now they're doing it 
through crappy advice on TikTok and trying to connect with anything they can, right? And I think it's it's somehow the same and yet a completely different problem. But um, I just, I don't even know if I like walked out of the appointment, you know, I didn't have an awareness that like my life had just completely changed. Yeah. I just, well, how could you, right? Yeah. I mean, how could you? At 15, that's not what you're thinking about either. You're thinking about, you know, whatever, the next thing you're going to do with your friends or, yeah. you know, what clothes you're going to buy, whatever a 15 year old thinks about, right? We're not at that age. We're definitely not thinking long-term. And, um, and before we go on, I just want to say also our, our topic today is, is somewhat sensitive. It's um, Brooke nor I are doctors, so we're not trying to prescribe anything. We're not um, telling anybody what they should or shouldn't do. We're just basically sharing Brooke's story today mm-hmm. and, um, and what she went through and, and the reality of that. And some of these other, I think, like we mentioned at the beginning, these unspoken things that, that don't get talked about, right? They're just, and then I, it also, as you experience this too, um, in a situation like this, when things don't get talked about and you're the person going through it, there's another layer of guilt or or something that gets piled on because you feel like you're doing something wrong. Because if nobody's talking about this, then nobody else must be experiencing it. It must just be me. So I must be wrong. That That's how been my experience in, in not this particular topic, but in other things in life. Yeah. I felt, and I really remember feeling this very, very distinctly and again, I, I think that probably a lot of teenagers feel this, is that I felt so deliciously validated mm-hmm. by the fact that a doctor had said there was something wrong with me. Yeah. Like, there was just something in it that was like all of my angst or whatever I was feeling, you know, is it really is as bad as I think it is. Yeah. And, and here's the proof. And here's the proof. Here's the proof. Yeah. Here's a stack mm-hmm. of prescriptions to prove it. Mm-hmm. That to me, I think was the most dangerous part of all of this was yeah. because that feeling suddenly validated every negative thing, every yes. negative emotion, every thing that went wrong. Uh, it validated that from, from then on out. So, you know, suddenly I didn't have to be ambitious or I didn't have to really try for you know, the best grades, or I didn't have to really figure out what I wanted to do or what I wanted to major in because who cares? Like I was broken by default. I was going to need to be on these drugs for the rest of my life. Like it just, it just put this weird, like lead ceiling on the way I thought about myself and my future. And then it was validated every single day when I took that pill. Like, right. and there was just something about that, that in a 15 year old brain where you don't have, you know, your prefrontal cortex, you're not thinking about the future. You are not thinking about consequences at all. Mm-hmm. You are, you're very much in the moment, which in, in some ways is a beautiful thing about being that age, but <laughs> that really twisted my perception of myself and my future. And I even knew it at the time. Like that is definitely something I see in retrospect. Yeah. But at the time I knew it. I just, it just, it felt so weirdly good in a way. Um, and I think that, you know, at the core of that, it's because I was a teenager who had just been through a trauma trying to, yeah. trying to connect and trying to find a reason why bad things happen. Like it sounds so pithy, but I think that's really what it was. And you know, especially kids now, I mean, you know, they've just been through this pandemic, which, you know, that's awful. And 
every, you know, the, their world is very uncertain. I think they are trying to find ways to make sense of it. And yeah. if you can make sense of it through a prescription pad that tells you you're totally right to feel the way you feel. And also there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. It's kind of a perfect storm. And it takes that, you talk about in the book about that control, right? It takes you out of the driver's seat, right? No longer, I'm not in control. I don't have to, there's nothing I can do. This is just the way it right. is. And um, I recently lost my dad a couple months ago and I, I can, so I can understand as an adult trying to make sense of it. So mm -hmm. much less as a 15 year old child trying to make sense of it, because mm -hmm. it's obviously neither age, no age is easy to lose a parent, but when you're, when you're forming yourself and then that happens, amongst all the other things going on at it, you know, the age 15, then, um, and it's, it's also one thing I experienced was the exhaustion from it. And it's almost like, just tell me what to do then just somebody yes. just tell me what to do because I, I can't, I can't, I don't have enough grief is overtaking me. And that's, that's like 99% of my energy. So I don't have any energy for anything else. Right, so right. just tell me what I need to do. I, I remember saying, tell me what to do yeah. very clearly because you know, Grief also, it doesn't just manifest in, you know, tears and uncontrollable sobbing. It also just manifests in kind of almost just like a psychic overwhelm where mm -hmm. everything yeah. just seems like too much and you just want to sleep and rest and you can't because you're already sleeping as much as you can, or maybe you're not sleeping at all. But there's just this, you know, existential exhaustion that comes with it, even if you're not outwardly sobbing. And I, I do remember feeling that a lot as a kid. Yeah combined with shock. And I just didn't want to have to make any more big decisions. Like a, the yeah. universe had just made a big decision for me. I, you know, I didn't even like, you know, want to talk about where I would go to college. It just all seemed too big and uncertain in how things would yeah. play out. Yeah. Too and, much. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, and I, I, my only experience with um, antidepressants was, and this is just another level to show back then of it seems like just how they would prescribe them almost for anything. Cause I had went to the doctor for PMS symptoms, right. At cramps, mm -hmm. at, you know, all these terrible things. They prescribed me effects are. Yep. And I was like, I remember thinking they're like, it's an antidepressant, but it'll help you. And mm -hmm. I was like, well, that doesn't make sense. Like, why would, why would that help that? And I was like, okay, again, they're the doctor, they know, you know, whatever. And I took it for a couple months it took me way longer to get off of it than those couple of months that I was on. And I can remember having to break them down and actually yeah. getting the dust out of the bottom yeah. of the pill bottle yeah. just to have a little bit more because I couldn't, because yeah. of the withdrawal. And, and that was my only experience with it. And that was just a couple of months. I mean, that's a pretty strong antidote or an antidote, uh, uh, anecdote, I think about how powerful these drugs can yeah. be and how easy it is. I mean, they're prescribed for, you know, off-label prescription is what it's called all the time. Mm -hmm. It's a mm -hmm. common prescription for Crohn's disease. Right. And like, it, it wouldn't be a problem if they weren't very difficult for a lot of people to get off of. Right. right. But they are. And that right. is not considered. That is still not considered these days when we're, when we're prescribing these drugs. Right. So you talk in the book about all the years you were on the meds and how it was always really easy to dig deeper into that depression. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's like, okay, I'm in, and, and this goes for anything in life, right? It's the, the, it's like the more you do, the more you do because you get that yeah. energy going, right. Or the less you do, the less you, do. and when you're digging further into the depression, then you're going to be more depressed. Mm -hmm. So can you talk about the day that you, you questioned who you would be 
without these pills? Like what, what drove you there? Like what was the catalyst? Was it anything? Was it just one day I just woke up and made a different decision or what was it for you? I, yeah, it was, it was pretty, it was a pretty clear moment. I had just, um, I was either about to turn 30 or had just turned 30. It was probably Mm -hmm. like, you know, it was around that time. Mm -hmm. And my dad died when I was 15. Yeah. And so I, I just had this kind of understanding all of a sudden that, okay, during my 30th year, I was going to, I was now entering into a period of my life where I will have spent more time without him than I did with him. Yeah. And there was something very, you know, very potent about that thought to me. Yeah. And at the same time, I realized, well, if that's the case, then I was medicated around the time he died. So it also means that we're getting to a point where I will have spent more than half my life on really powerful drugs. And oh, I've also never spent a single adult moment without them. Yeah. So that just started like percolating in my in my brain. And I didn't really do anything about it right away. But then I just kind of kept, you know, living my life. And I was starting to just have, you know, stronger, stronger and stronger suicidal thoughts. Mm-hmm. But it was it was slow. You know, it wasn't dramatic in the sense that, you know, I certainly wasn't like on suicide watch or anything like that. It never called, it never occurred to me to call the suicide hotline. Like right. nobody, I don't think in my life thought that that's what was going on. And it didn't even feel abnormal to me because it was so slow. It's just like over time, I had just been going down, 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 down gradually. And it, you know, started off as apathy and then you know kind of not wanting to be alive then being envious of people who aren't and then kind of like oh well I guess you know there is always this option like it was a really really slow insidious Mm -hmm. change and I just remember I was like I'd taken the screen out of my window I lived on the 30th floor of a Manhattan building and I was looking at the ground below and I was just thinking how easy it would be to fall Mm -hmm. and I'd thought that if a while for you know before but there was just something about it where I was then then it was just like a breeze came by and all of a sudden I was like I shouldn't be this thinking this way if I'm yeah. on this many antidepressants like it was and it, it took so many years to make that connection but yeah. it finally just like the light bulb turned on and I kind of pulled myself back inside and was just like huh yeah I need to huh <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think yeah. I just kind of like turned around and like walked got a cup of coffee and was just like huh and it was a little discombobulated and then within like a week or two I got this opportunity to, to travel and yeah. that was really the you know the impetus to say okay what I'm doing isn't working I also have this opportunity these like I cannot keep doing any of this the way I've been doing it so let me just go explore my options let me go see a psychiatrist and see what happens yeah. um and so, so that was it. It was, it was both a hugely profound and also unremarkable moment at the same time. Yeah, <laughs> they usually yeah. are. The big ones usually yeah. are unremarkable, yeah. but it's interesting though, that because you talk also in the book about how, when you got off the meds and how your senses started to come back to life, yeah. right. And how, how that process was. Mm-hmm. And when you're in your mom's description of you, of how you were flat a lot mm-hmm. of the time when you were on. And so, mm-hmm. um, it's, it, it's, it's amazing. I think also in a, a very, I think positive story of hope for anybody listening to this yeah. too, how you're, you were able to even have those thoughts, even though your, your body was medicated, you were numb, you know, all these things going on. Right. But your body was still 
your soul, whatever you want to call it, mm -hmm. was still knew there was something more. There was a different option, a different opportunity. And the day that you made the connection to that, um, your life changed. Yeah. And it, it's it's so that that and I just wanted to point that out for anybody listening that um that no matter what you're feeling or what you're going through, um, you know, there are, uh, there are options and there is hope. And there is, um, our, I think the, the amazing thing is our body is working for us to get us mm -hmm. to that place that we want to go. I, I completely agree. I mean, I think, you know, all of this, all the mental health crisis that we're talking about, especially when I feel like a lot of the time we're talking about like pretty generalized stuff. I mean, there's, I think there's always a door to be left open for extremely severe cases where people kind of, you know, pop out, you know, not quite, you know, a little, a little off, I guess is not a very compassionate way to say it, but I think everyone knows what I'm saying, but yeah. most, most of the time, two-year-olds are happy, right? Right. And, and, and we grow into this dysphoria. We grow into this based on the things that happen to us or the state of the world or, or our life situation, whatever it is. And sometimes it's slow, sometimes it's fast, but I, I think that, you know, depression and anxiety are, they're, they're signs. They are yeah. signs that something in our life is not working and it is our job. It is, it is the big work, you know, capital W work in our life to unravel those things, those stories and make the changes we need in order to let, you know, you know, our soul our higher consciousness, God, whatever, whatever it is, you know, shine through and be able to live in a world that is most resonant to you as the individual. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I think that one of the frustrations with antidepressants, at least for me, is that it kind of like quiets that voice that's yes. telling you something's wrong. It flattens the bell curve. So, yeah, you know, I mean, like I wasn't I wasn't like so drugged out that I wasn't appearing to react normally in society. Right. It was just, you know, I could still be happy. I could still be sad. I could still be frustrated or angry. But everything was the, the edges were really, really blunted. And yeah. I didn't know, but also my senses, my physical senses were blunted as well. My eyesight, hearing, touch, taste. I really didn't know that because I had been on them for so long. It was only right. when I started to get off of them that all the physical senses also kind of woke up in addition to my emotions. Um, but I think that I, th I think that if we can find a way, and this is, you know, all about the individual, which is so hard, and it's about the individual making gigantic choices often painful ones right if we can if we can figure out how to be better at that how to identify situations that are not good for you that mm -hmm. cause these you know psychological struggles then we can start being we can start feeling better we can start healing we can start creating a life that is not so despondent and so and so dependent perhaps on these, you know, powerful drugs, but right. we also don't live in a society that supports that. And Another a lot of people mm -hmm. are in situations that are very difficult to extricate from and require resources that they don't have. So I'm not saying that I know the solution. I definitely don't. And, you know, there's a very political aspect of this just from, you know, not just from the sense that, you know, changes in the world come from policy. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of things that I don't know, and there's a lot of answers I don't have, but I do think that starting and looking at, okay, if you are having severely anxious thoughts or are very depressed, then there is something in your life that needs to be fixed. I think that's, that's kind of an irrefutable statement. 
how we fix it and the ease is is a completely different conversation and very individual but you know if we have junk values we're going to feel like junk right and even what you were just saying about solutions i don't personally i don't believe there is just one solution it's no, everything is so as you said just individualized and it's it's um recognizing as an individual what what's going on with you and what your options are based on that right and there was so recently there wasn't maybe it wasn't recently because time seems to go really fast but um <laughs> at some point in the last several months there was an article came out that was talking about how how basically debunking this long-held theory yeah, right about yeah. chemical about the reason people the serotonin theory of depression right yes. Yes. Yeah. So the reason why people are depressed is because they have a chemical imbalance. So this right. article came out debunking this, right? right. And um, I remember reading that and even reading comments about this and people being like, well, how can this be true? Or it was kind of the same reali- yeah. realization that you had, right? In the comments, I'm seeing people like, yeah. well, I've been on this for so long, or, you know, I know yeah. personally know people who have been on this, on, on yeah. drugs like this for so long. And it goes back to kind of what we talked about with that control, taking control of our life or giving the control over, giving the control over to the drugs or the doctor, right. Versus mm-hmm. um, understanding that we're on our own driver's seat. And, and, and that story, I think, you know, as people, I don't know, and in, in my opinion, become more awakened to the world over the past couple of years, a story like this is just another crumbling of, mm-hmm. of how um, nothing is really outside of ourselves. It's all mm-hmm. within. And we all have our own control whether we want to believe that or not, um, we do. We have more control than we let on. Like what you hear so far? Take what you've learned and invest in yourself with the Create What You Speak Academy. Visit createwhatyouspeak.com to learn more. Now back to the show. How was that for you reading that story and experiencing that? And I'm sure you got a lot of comments and people, I'm sure, had a lot to say to you after that. What was that like? Uh, I, I think it's been fascinating to watch uh, how that story or that that article i mean it was is one of the largest reviews ever done on this topic mm-hmm. i think they right. looked at like hundreds of thousands of patients through a variety of different different papers and it was fascinating to me to watch the mental gymnastics play <laughs> out right. right both from the media from individuals like you could just sometimes I would look at people and you could just see their brains scrambling trying to make sense of it. And and the the weird part about that for me, for someone who has spent a lot of time in this world, you know, I'm mm-hmm. not a doctor research researcher, but I, I spent a lot of time here, right? Yeah. Like yeah. I read that and I was just like, okay, well, duh. Right. <laughs> like, right. Like I know this. There's been a big uh, you know, kind of a lot of noise from the psychiatric industry of all these doctors saying, well, we knew that, right? Like this isn't news, but that's completely going, you know, makes you wonder, okay, well then why are so many people like, why, why are they so shaken by this? And it's, you know, it just comes down to the convenient narrative we've been told. I mean, right. like, I think a lot of this has to do with the way the world has changed in the past 20 years. You know, we had the little Zoloft egg, Mm-hmm. bopping along in the early 2000s, you know, telling us that literally saying depression, they did use the word may, depression may be caused by a chemical imbalance in the brain. And then you see the little simple drawings and the little mm-hmm. like things yeah. going back and forth. And, and like the, the receptors or whatever. That, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And that was the first time that we had really been told that and that it was told in such like a pleasant, easy to understand way. <laughs> I think so many people were just like, oh, well, that's the source of my suffering. It's my chemically imbalanced brain. 
And and you didn't need a doctor to tell you that. I mean, I've had doctors tell me that, but you didn't need a doctor to tell you that if you're then going to go home and see the same ad, you know, 20 times a day, like, right. Right. So you can see how that's going to kind of make its way into the culture. And then right at the same time, we enter into this place where we transition from news as a newspaper modality where you're getting, Mm -hmm. you know, a group of, you know, select stories every day in your paper that shows up in your, you know, front yard, or maybe you have a magazine that comes out once a month, right? Right. Start to transition from that into the world of clickbait and the world Mm of online news and the world of blogs. And I'm, you know, not blogs like your neighbor, you know, Sherry's blogging about cookies, blogs in the sense of major, major, you know, many millions of hits every day in the form of like, sites like very well health or healthline you know like these these companies that have emerged to just provide health information mm-hmm. if you're a reporter or you're a writer when you're freelancing or you're on staff here your job is to churn out as much as you can with as many headlines as you can in order to make as much money for the company as you can so right. suddenly nuance goes out the window right so if we're getting a line you know about zoloft and our you know little happy egg and the chemical imbalance well that's an easy story to write in 500 words right and you can go to the fda and you can see the handful of studies that have shown that their product works right no one's going to look into the fact that you know there was a lot of studies that happened before where the product didn't work right it just wasn't published or all the times when it didn't work any better or all the work about placebo effects like it's out there but that's not the story with the bow. Right. And I'm not convinced that, you know, there's been like one or two evil people pulling the strings here. I think it's just kind of been, again, a perfect storm of technology and information and changing times and very upset people and culture change and inconvenience. Inconvenience. Yeah. And like, the insurance world has changed. The, the being a doctor, the way doctors practice has changed so much over the yeah. same period of time, and it's it's just really squeezing everyone tight. And in my opinion, what's going to happen here is one: I think we're going to see a similar trajectory of antidepressants as we have with like the benzo opioid crisis. I think that we're going to mm-hmm. it's just going to start to unravel a little bit, but despite all of this information we have about benzos and opioids and their addictive qualities, we're not really seeing, you know, um, addiction rates go down. Right. So, you know, I think, so I think these things are going to be around, but I do think that it's going to start to just really force uh, individuals who are, who really care about this and are paying attention to start advocating for themselves a little bit more. You've got to know what questions to ask. You've got to know how to do your own research. And it's not because your doctor's a terrible person trying to swindle you it's because your poor doctor is completely overwhelmed right like spending more time billing than they are seeing patients because that's the system we're in because there's a new drug being turned out every day they cannot expected to they cannot be expected to know everything about everything and so what are what are they supposed to do well they need you to like show up and do your part of the work and say like okay this is what i've found this is what i think is going on here's the literature what do you think like mm-hmm. in my experience that's what doctors need and what they appreciate um and if they don't then i say that's a pretty good sign is maybe you should find a different doctor 
Yeah. I, and I mean, there's so much there with the whole healthcare system and the, yeah. the insurance and the time, the limited time with patients. And then we could talk for hours about right. that, but the, but we know that's a problem. So right. it's not going to get better. Don't expect the right. system to change for you. What can you do within the system? Exactly. To help yes, exactly. That's exactly right. And it, it's that it goes back to that personal responsibility or taking that mm-hmm. control back for yourself instead of just freely handing it over to someone else who spends maybe two minutes with you. And, you, you know, there's, there's so many red flags along that process if we're just yeah. willing to look at them and then, and, and also understand. And, and what I love about your story too, is that other side of, of hope that you, you, right. you don't have to, you can, you can choose a different life, any old random day that was uneventful, like you did, right. You can choose a different day. And Mm -hmm. so I want to go back just to the book briefly and talk about, talk about your experience after being off antidepressants and, and what your life has been like. I I think you did an experiment saying yes to things, kind of how that (laughs) changed your life. What was that like? I mean, and, and also what was it like looking back at yourself even now, now maybe talking about it, like, yeah. obviously you're not the same person. What, what's that like? Yeah. Well, I'll start with the, what I called the yes quest because it, it led to some pretty major changes in my life. But what I had realized is, so I, I took my last antidepressant in the summer of 2016. Mm-hmm. I got on a plane to Malaysia on like August 30th or something like that. And so then I was traveling in a different country every month for 12 months. What I started to re- realize, it took me about nine months to realize this. Um, I was still in uh, pretty severe withdrawal for a good chunk of that time with the book. Mm-hmm. And I started to come out of it and started to kind of like feel more steady in the world. Yeah. At, at about six months into my trip. Mm-hmm. But all the old habits were still there. And one of the things I noticed is that like I kept like I'd hear my friends talk about something that had happened the night before or the day before I'd see photos of some cool thing they did. And I just kind of, again, it felt very obvious in retrospect by the time I was like, well, why am I not having this much fun? Like, why am I not there? Right. And I realized it's because I had been conditioned to pretty much shut things down and stay no and be by myself because I had spent so many years doing that, you know, I, that was, was the storyline, right? That was, was the story. It was the story. It was who I was. Yeah. I was an introvert who mm-hmm. didn't like to go out and I was happiest at home doing a puzzle in Croatia or Cambodia or wherever it was. Yeah. And um, I, I just was like, okay, what is my role in this process? My role mm-hmm. is that I have said no enough that I'm no longer invited to things anymore. And that's yeah. why I'm missing out. It wasn't that, you know, no one liked me or, you know, everybody else had some sort of magic. It was, I had created this. Yeah. So I was in uh, Vancouver, Canada at the time, and I said, all right, I'm going to literally say yes to every single yes or no question for an undefined amount of time. I was going to do it. I, my thought I was going to do it for a year. I had just also left, like I'd sold my business. I had no idea what I was doing in life. So I was like, eh, okay, wait, let's try it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so I literally said, yes, like, you know, I like my coffee, you know, with cream, but not sugar. But if a barista said, do you want cream and sugar in your coffee? I said, I have to say yes. Yeah. If if someone asked me for money while I'm walking home, I have to, as long as they frame it in a yes or no question, I had to yeah. say yes. <laughs> Even if that meant I had no more money, right? Mm-hmm. I had to go to concerts for bands I didn't like. I had to get up early and, you know, I did a Spartan race that I didn't want to do because I hate running, right? It was yeah, just yeah. doing these things and saying yes. And and for the most part, it was unremarkable. It was It was small little things. But the two the two major things that happened is um, I ended up agreeing to cat sit 
uh, a cat that I was allergic to. And it brought me to a new area of town. And I ended up meeting, you know, a person who became a really long-term important relationship because Mm -hmm. of this damn cat I was allergic to (laughs) that I had to say yes to because someone asked me, uh, will you house sit for me? And cat said, Oh God, fine. You know? (laughs) Yeah. So it did lead to this very important relationship because I met this man at a restaurant, uh, next to the cat. Um, so that was one aspect. Uh, I don't write about that, but it, it mattered. But the other one was my book. I had, you know, yeah. I owned a bakery in New York that we had sold and we had published a book, a cookbook about the bakery. Mm-hmm. And I had a literary agent for that book. And she kind of said, you know, will you write about this experience and let me try and sell it? And I was like, I was in your, where was I? I was in uh, Argentina, Chile. I was in Chile. And she was just like, will you write about this experience? Let me try and sell it. And I was like, oh, God. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) It was the most begrudging yes ever. Because I was like, this is not something I feel qualified to do. But again, and nothing else going on. So I gave it a shot. And I just kind of committed to it and started writing. And then um, about six months later, a big article in the New York Times came out about uh, the the head the headline was many people taking antidepressants discover they cannot quit mm, and when yes. i saw that i was like oh this this is a story that goes beyond me as an individual this is yeah. affecting so many people in the world and there is no firsthand accounts of what this is like right. suddenly the book had a reason to live yeah and so then i spent the next so what four years continuing to work on it until it did finally sell and now, now I can go buy it in a bookstore, but that's how the book got written. <laughs> well, and what I love about that yes story is or the what you were talking about, your experience with saying yes, that's such an easy way to change your story, yeah. right? Yeah. Because sometimes we think like, oh, I this is who I am. Now I have to make up this whole thing. It's gonna be so much work. Yeah. It's gonna be all this, right? But saying yes, committing to saying yes, that's just such an easy way to change your story yeah. because now you're doing things. It's, it's not so much as you have to make like, think of something new, it's being brought to you, right? It's yeah. coming to you. And then you're saying yes. And then that that person you are on the other side of the yes and being able to stretch and grow. And, and with your book, I mean, it's such an important topic. So I'm glad you said yes to that because it's <laughs> such, I mean, this is, um, to me, after reading your book, it's, even if somebody like myself, my just brief encounter with, with antidepressants, this is, this is that, but it's, there's so much more in this story mm-hmm. that in that, that I think pretty much everybody can relate to. Yeah. Like, like you said in the introduction, it's really about questioning your identity and the yeah. word identity is got, getting thrown a lot around a lot these days mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. not about what I'm talking about here, but you know, I've come, I've really started to come to believe that identity is possibly one of the most destructive things we have in our culture. Mm, it yeah. really puts people into some sort of box and puts parameters around that, that not only make create an us versus them mentality, but it like, it takes you away from your inner compass yeah. because we are, we are more than, you know, we can say in a few words and, you know, on our bio, right. We are more than yeah. what we do or who we love or what we like. Right. But if we really take stock in that thing that we we so identify with, it's going to get challenged. It is Mm -hmm. going to be taken away from you. And that is going to create huge amounts of suffering. So for me, the identity was I am depressed. This is who I am going to be. There was no opportunity to get out of that box and heal from that. 
ever because I had decided that was who I was. Right. So the book is about unraveling that narrative. And I was lucky in the sense that I had taken this opportunity to travel. And so every month I was in a new country. I was there long enough to get bored, long enough to feel all the human emotions without being distracted by the, you know, the newness of it all. But because we moved around also as frequently as we did, I was able to basically see what came with me. I couldn't blame my depression on my business partner or my bakery or my finances or the fact that New York sucks your soul. Like I had all these reasons for so long to say that that is the problem. But as soon as I then was in Malaysia and Thailand and Cambodia and Croatia, all I was able to do to was watch what came with me. Yeah. And it was just my own crap. It was the story I told myself and the identity that I had built. That was the only thing that came with me. Yeah. In that in that context, I was able to really work on all this stuff and unravel my story in a way that I don't think I would have been able to do otherwise. And I frankly have no idea how people who don't get this amazing opportunity could do it because there's so many, you're so intertwined with yeah. your universe. So, yeah. you know. I, I, but, but that, I think it's really important to not hold on too tightly to any of that stuff because then you leave yourself no latitude for movement. Yeah. And there's nothing better than travel to change your perspective. I looked into the program you did and I was going to do the month long one in um, Columbia, but that was in, I was going to do it, I think in 2020. And of course that didn't happen. And the other funny thing about your book is I had a dog named Buffy growing up too. (laughs) So when I read Buffy in there, I was like, oh, my dog Buffy. (laughs) I remember, just made me remember. So yeah. Um, So, well, Brooke, I want to thank you for joining us today. Your story is amazing. Um, There's just so much depth to this and so much realness. And like I said, it's just something that on every level, even if somebody hasn't experienced, obviously if you've experienced antidepressants, even if you haven't, there's so much in this story that I think everybody can relate to. So Um, Can you tell the listeners how they can find out more about you and your book? Sure. You can find me on all platforms in my website uh, with my name. So it's Brooke Seem, B-R-O-O-K-E-S-I-E-M as in Mary. I am, you know, various levels of engaged on each of the platforms, but like I'm kind of there. I also have a newsletter called Happiness is a Skill. You can find Mm -hmm. that on Substack and it, it is what the name implies. It is all about practicing the skill of happiness and kind of understanding, you know, why it's not a given, why it's not something that's anointed to some and not given to others. It's about yeah. how we can, how we can learn these skills and that's how we live a happier, more fulfilling life. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. My guest today has been Brooke Seam, author of the book, May Cause Side Effects. And before we close out, Brooke, what do you hope the readers learn or take away after reading your book? Oh yeah. I saw you had the book up there. Yes. <laughs> Bright orange cover. Uh, hard to miss in a bookstore. Feel free to put it on total display if you find it. Uh, what I hope the readers get, I mean, it really depends on the reader. You know, yeah. I hope that patients who are experiencing with antidepressant withdrawal uh, feel seen and feel less crazy and understand that this is a process that, you know, as awful as it is, is, is actually a normal reaction to the drugs they've been on. It can be. Mm-hmm. I hope that doctors and prescribers who read this have more empathy and more understanding of what their patients are going through. And I hope it inspires them to do more research and continuing education because there are ways to avoid this. And we, we, we know what they are. It's not perfect, but it's, 
it's possible. It's called hyperbolic tapering. You can Google it. Um, And then I hope that parents, uh, this also really helps them because there are so many parents, especially, you know, who are struggling with their, you know, young adults and teens who are also struggling and don't know this part of the conversation. They just don't. And, And so I hope that this helps them make a more informed choice for their kid and helps them also really understand the the implications of medicating people who are not in charge of their own healthcare yet. Right. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's, I don't talk about the research isn't in there about how this affects kids in part, because one, we don't have it. And two, <laughs> that's not the book I wrote. Yeah. So and in the end of the day, as a parent, you really are following your own intuition here, but I don't think parents have enough information yet. Yeah. And so I hope that this just adds to the information that they can, that they can gather. Yes. Well, again, thank you, Brooke, and and congratulations on the book. Thank you so much, Sloan. You've been listening to the Create What You Speak podcast brought to you by webtalkradio.net. You can also hear the podcast on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and your favorite podcasting platform. I'm Sloan Fremont, and I hope you'll join me for the next episode of the Create What You Speak podcast, where we will continue to free our minds, expand our consciousness, and untangle those thoughts and patterns that keep us from living the life we desire. Check out my website, sloanfremont.com, to learn more.